as we now look to our Lord in prayer. And Father, for the one who comes and hurting in any of these services today, I pray that you will do a great work in their hearts and lives and show them what it is you want to say, what it is that you're teaching, how we can grow in our understanding. We're praying for those that come in any of these services that may not know Christ as Lord and Savior. There's going to be a stirring of their hearts, a longing to know this one that you sent into the world to die for our sins. Stir that heart, Father, to saving faith. And for all that know you, all that love you, those that understand we're saved, not on the basis of our works, but exclusively on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Equip us then to be able to minister effectively to others. You put us in some very unique counseling situations. If work, neighborhoods, extended family gatherings. To be able to perhaps say something that thus far has not been said. And we need that kind of wisdom from you. So Father, warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. Come now, Father, see Jesus, him only. Pray these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. And there's a great podcast that has just come out, Dr. Ed Welch, who specializes in what you and I might call evangelistic counseling, where he seeks to find ways to be able to draw those who may not know Christ as Lord and Savior in such a way that they are longing for what matters most in life. He gives us an example. A woman who was a believer, her husband was an unbeliever, an unbelieving atheist, but an unbelieving atheist who loved his wife. And so we met. And there's paralyzing anxiety in her life. I got to know her. And he would sit in the back of the room. He just said, well, quote, I'm just here to just sort of observe, unquote. He just wanted to be with his wife. And we'd talk about scripture together, his wife and me. Well... Gradually, his chair began to move into our little circle. And one time, he even prayed when we were in this circle. And it was a different kind of prayer, but he was headed in the right direction. And by the way, what is counseling? What's facing Jesus? That's what we want to do. We're moving toward him and with him. And evangelism, same thing. It's moving toward him, perhaps for the first time. And I knew that this man was in trouble. Once he began to, well, she would talk, and he would interrupt me. And he would go through scripture with his wife. And I hate to say that it was anticlimactic when he asked me to go out for lunch and announce that he too had become a Christian. Now, that was a more loaded experience. We both cared for the same person who was suffering. And obviously, he was the husband, me, counselor. But he was stunned by this personal world 
This personal God who spoke, the God who was so close, he was struck with the personalness of it all. In that podcast, what I found interesting in terms of what Dr. Ed Welsh would go on to say is that there were three significant insights that he wanted people who in their relational counseling to grab hold of. One, we live in an intensely personal world. People suffer intensely. People dream intensely. People think intensely. But it's all done so personally. Secondly, to counsel well involves knowing God personally, but also being personal with the one you counsel. Which is true of Job. Job is the only counselor, as we've pointed out, that mentions Job's name. Job is more than a counselee. Job is more than a patient. Job's got a name. And while Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar addressed him, they never, in essence, spoke to him. With him. Elihu does. But thirdly, what this gifted counselor tells us is that what you and I need to do is to enter by the gate of trouble. In other words, when you are ministering to somebody who is experiencing trouble, physically, emotionally, relationally, identify what it is that troubles them the most, and then enter through the gate of trouble, you're entering into their lives via that means. Now, what I'm going to do with you is to, with this 33rd chapter before us, is to draw three significant guidelines as to the way we can go about counseling hurting people. And what's fascinating here is that we've got the youngest counselor guiding the older counselors, as well as the one who needs the counsel, Job. Here's this young man setting up a model for you and me to ponder. And the first guideline I see coming out of these verses is this, that as you and I, as we counsel hurting people, I want, you, I want to point out, first of all, the lessons that suffering offers. We've got to be teachable. Notice very carefully how Elihu begins in verse 19. He says, man is also rebuked with pain on his bed. What Elihu is about to do is to expand the counselor's understanding of how God relates to suffering. Week by week, what we've noted for each and every one of us is that their thinking was that suffering is simply based upon some gross committed sin that was somewhere in your past. Repent of it, and then you'll eliminate the suffering. And they've gone around in circles. And Job has been, become very defensive in the whole process. Nobody's made any headway. It's because they had such a restrictive view of the way in which God relates to suffering. What Elihu does now is begin to expand their thinking. They're focused upon what we have talked about as retributive justice. Getting what you deserve. You must have done something wrong, so suffering's what you deserve. 
What Elihu does here is that he brings to the forefront the idea of educational grace. That just maybe, just maybe, God wants to teach you something. And once the lesson is learned, you're going to be better equipped to do whatever it is that God has called you to do. Now when you and I begin to expand our understanding of why we suffer and why people suffer, we're going to see that there are still additional reasons throughout the Bible that you can point out. Not only what we'll call retributive justice, getting what you deserve, or educational grace where God wants to teach. A third one, preparational lessons, where God is preparing you today for whatever it is that he wants to do with you tomorrow. I remember on the athletic fields, we'd go through some incredibly difficult practices. We were hurting. We would limp off the field. But all that was preparational for game day. When we'd be out on the field, we would have to perform at highest levels of excellence. Some of us are going through preparational times. Times where we're being prepared today for the way in which God wants to work with us tomorrow. Retributive justice, educational grace, preparational lessons. Here's another one. Compassionate counsel. When we covered 2 Corinthians 1 as a congregation last year, 2 Corinthians, we had noted in chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of mercies, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. There's something very profound when you and I can take how we've hurt and use it as a means to minister to those who hurt. This is how God equips. We're not to waste our sufferings. We're to invest our sufferings. So now, man is also rebuked. One of the additional reasons, educational grace... Is he talking about Job at this point? When he goes on to say with pain on his bed. He's identifying now with the fact, he's using analogy here, we know you're hurting Job. And with continual strife in his bones. Is there an orthopedic issue on our hands here? But now notice that he moves at this point onwards in verse 20 so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. Once he had such an appetite for the things that you and I love, Job knew the best restaurants in the area, you see. But now he doesn't even have an appetite for bread or water. He's just trying to exist trying to keep on keeping on. You ever been there? Got anybody in your life like that? And his flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen in his bones that were not seen stick out. It's using orthopedic imagery at this point. Where's God? Is he silent? Is God teaching in the midst of it all? I came across this from a chess master, brilliant teacher, Bruce Patafini, 
said, my, my lessons consist of a lot of silence. Now, I listen to other teachers, and they're always talking. But me? I let my students think. If I do ask a question, such as, why are you making that move? And I don't get the right answer, I'll rephrase the question and wait. I don't give the answer. I want them to come to the answer. It's part of the process of taking ownership of the answer. Now what Elihu's doing at this point is that he's utilizing the silence of God. And Job is now going to have to process, what am I learning from this experience so that I'm a better man for it? You ever been confronted with the silence of God? Have you pondered that that might be one of the chess master's teaching moments for you, for me? Well, in verse 22, we're told his soul draws near the pit. First of four times in this chapter where you're going to find Elihu referring to death as the pit. In other words, he wants to create a tension now in Job's mind between what's temporal and what's eternal. Because you and I know the natural tendency of humanity is to make the temporal eternal. Now, what he wants to do at this point is to say, his soul draws near the pit, his life to those who bring death. What's God teaching? What are the lessons here? Dr. Robert Leitner was a professor of theology at Dallas Theological Seminary. And he's involved in an incredible plane crash. Single-engine plane flipped over during takeoff. Badly injured, bruised beyond recognition. And his wife, when she first saw him, said, quote, I, I looked at this black mass of flesh. I didn't even know who he was, unquote. He recovered, became a living testimony of the grace of God through that ordeal. I was curious what his initial response to it was all about. Here's what he said, quote, I learned things I did not know I needed to learn. Unquote. And he would use that phrase on more than one occasion. He would be able to relate to Elihu at this point because Elihu is bringing out the idea of educational grace. That don't get so caught up in God's justice. It's the only reason why you're suffering. It could be that this suffering is really God's grace. It could be educational grace. It could be something along the lines of preparational lessons. So you're better equipped for tomorrow's game. It could involve compassionate counsel, where you're learning counsel, 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 compassion today in order to counsel tomorrow. It could be witnessing suffering, so that the entire cosmos realizes you haven't been bought to such a degree that as long as, as, long as you're 
as long as your blessings are there, well, then you'll serve God. But it, remove the blessings and you'll walk away from God. But that's not how you operate, you see. Because, you know, he gives and takes away. He gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the cosmos has got to understand this. You are loyal in both the give and the take of life. As people are watching how you function in the realm of suffering itself. And so there's a Dr. Leitner, a theology professor, pondering his own plane crash experience and talking about lessons learned. And Elihu would have shaken his head. Because as you and I, as we counsel hurting people, we point out, first of all, for them the lessons that suffering offers. And now we draw out the wide-ranging reasons that I've, I've pointed out to at least two times already this morning as to what the scriptures say about why people suffer. But as you're counseling, remember that we live in an intensely personal world. Remember that the counsel will. You have to know God personally. You've got to know others personally. Know their name. And enter by the gate of trouble. In the process, move from felt needs to ultimate needs. Move them towards Jesus. Now when you're doing that, here then is a second guideline that this young wise counselor is offering you and me in our relational dynamics among hurting people. That second of all, as we counsel hurting people, point out the grace that God supplies. Not only the lessons that suffering offers in 19 through 22, the grace that God supplies in 23 through 28. Look for grace here, okay? Now, in verse 23, he starts off now by saying, If there be for him an angel... A mediator, one of the thousand, to declare to man what is right for him. Stop right there. What fascinates me at this point is that Elihu has been listening very carefully to the words of Job. I would have thought that the figures of speech from Job's lips would be medical terms. You know what? The figures of speech from Job's lips were legal terms. If you track, in Job chapter 9, verse 33, Job longed for an arbiter. Someone who would be able to deal in God's cosmic courtroom and to make Job's case. When we got up to Job, Job chapter 16, verse 19, Elihu was still listening because Job longed for a witness. Again, it was a legal term in a courtroom. And finally, he gave his great testimony in chapter 19 and verse 25 when he said, I know my Redeemer liveth, which was the phrase that we noticed on that Palm Sunday just prior to Easter. Great preparation of how to ponder an Easter service in light of a hurting experience. But none of the other counselors picked up on it. But the wise counselor listens to the terminology being used by the hurting person. Listens to repeated phrases. Listens to not only repetition, but also to rephrasing. Saying the same thing, but in different ways. 
What that repetition or rephrasing does for you and me at this point is it informs us that this is of high value to that person who's hurting. Somehow I'm going to have to enter into their counseling conversation in order to get their attention, understanding what those words signify to that person. In other words, Job's thinking legally. So how does Elihu approach this? He approaches the suffering then legally. He says, if there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand. Now, a mediator was a legal term. And Job's thinking legally, so Elihu's going to respond legally. And I can just see now that the others are listening in rather intently at this point because Elihu is the only one who's speaking uh, in terms of messianic teachings, messianic counsel. The others were talking about God, but evidently didn't seem to know God, do you? But Elihu has taken this further because he's inching us towards the second member of the Trinity. He talks about a mediator. The next phrase, one of the thousand, fascinates me in the Hebrew because as, as Franz Delitzsch, a, a German professor of a prior era, described it, he is one above the thousand. In other words, he is singled out to be not merely eminent, but preeminent. So now, this is the sort of person that Job is longing to be able to have represent him in his cosmic courtroom experience. And now it's coming from the lips of a counselor. The only counselor that can talk about Messiah. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament for Christ. The Greek word, New Testament. So if there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, and he's merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Now, your mind ought to be fully engaged at this point. He's talked about a mediator. He's talked about a ransom. Question. Where would you go in the Newer Testament to link those two words together? Ponder this. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, the Apostle Paul wrote, For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom to all. Mediator, ransom, Paul. Mediator, ransom, Elihu. Elihu is connecting all these counselors as well as this counselee to the Messiah who's to come. Only one to do it. Now, it could very well be that God has positioned you at work, in extended family gatherings, neighborhoods, because you're the only one to do it. That somehow you have found what I'll call the entry gate. You've identified the means by which you can move from the felt need to the ultimate need, which is salvation through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But your entry gate starts with what that person's feeling at this point. And what we find here is that Elihu gets it. It's personal, uses Job's name. Legal, the words that Job uses, the, his value system. 
So now he moves from felt need to ultimate need, Messiah, as he talks about the mediator. One of the thousand declared to man what is right for him, and he's merciful to him. Here's grace. Deliver him from going down into the pit, is what he'll say at this point. So now what we need here is someone to step in, make a difference. I have found a ransom. It could very well be you don't know why you're going through what you're going through right now, but you know you're going through it. But this could be preparatory grace. Philodia learned that. In his last year of medical school, when the school officials discovered he was a Christian, Philodia was threatened with expulsion from school in a communist land. You choose. Either God or diploma. The authorities demanded. Now, Volodia's mentors, were told, tried to ensure that Volodia, best student in his class, would graduate. So for several months, they, they conducted indoctrination sessions intended to force the student to renounce his faith. One day, unannounced, Communist Party official visited Volodia's class and said, strange things have been happening in this university. There's a rumor that some of the students are trying to believe in God. We want to find out if this is true. I am now asking Volodia to come forward and clarify this rumor. The writer tells us, struck by the shock of being summoned, Volodia understood. He was being offered a final chance to renounce his faith. Reminds me of Satan and Job. Curse God and die. The writer then tells us the rest of the story. For 20 minutes, quote, I had the opportunity of my lifetime to tell my fellow students, medical students, about Christ. Volodia was expelled from the university, was able to make his way west, and greatly used by God as he combined his medical skills with his courageous verbal testimony. He experienced a loss in order to experience a greater gain. Preparatory grace. Some of us are experiencing preparatory grace right now through suffering. But we've got to ask ourselves, what is it today that's preparing me for what I might be able to do tomorrow? Volodia could not have anticipated what he experienced. But he's being used by God by being faithful in the midst of the loss that he then encountered. Are you? The type of person that counsels effectively to those who are hurting intensely understands the various reasons why we hurt, including preparatory grace, preparatory lessons. You move on in verse 25, let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. And then man prays to God and he accepts him and he sees his face with a shout of joy. He restores to man his righteousness. And he sings before men, says, I sinned, perverted what was right. It was not repaid to me. And now Elihu still capturing the idea of Messiah teaching in the midst of his counseling opportunity. It says in verse 
28. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit. Mark this. My life shall look upon the light. Now, people who are in the dark are longing to be able to see the light. So now, here you have a situation where it's as if, as if Elihu at this point is illuminating the mindset of Job, who seems to be so in the dark, because you and I have read chapters 1 and 2, and he hasn't, you see. The light. Ecuador. President Boria, former president of Ecuador, was talking with some of the prison fellowship, international ministry members, about his own experience of loss, of his own imprisonment years before being elected to the presidency. I'm reading now. He had been involved in the struggle for democracy in Ecuador. The military cracked down. He was arrested, and without trial, there's the legal idea, they threw him into a cold dungeon with no light, no window. No one knew where he was for, here's irony, three days. For three days he endured the solitary fear and darkness that can drive a person mad. But just when the situation seemed unbearable, this huge steel door opened and someone crept into the darkness. Borgia heard the person working on something in the opposite corner. And then the figure crept out, closed the door, disappeared. And minutes later, the room suddenly blazed with light. Someone, perhaps taking his life into his hands, had connected electricity to the broken light fixture. The darkness of the dungeon was gone. Quote, from that moment, explained President Borgia, my imprisonment had meaning because at least I could see. When you're counseling people, every so often they have one of these aha moments. When they say, oh, now I get it. Now I see. And they're using a visual analogy to describe a mental fact. Now I see. What you do then is that wherever God has positioned you, you take these various reasons why people suffer, as we've described biblically, and you pour it into your own impactful opportunities, and each of us have them, because we're always surrounded by hurting people. And as you and I, as we counsel hurting people, you point out the lessons that suffering offers. We've, we've enumerated them. The grace that God supplies. Elihu's pointing towards Jesus. And now we're ready for the third guideline. But thirdly, as you and I counsel hurting people, point out thirdly, the dialogue that sufferers need. They don't need monologue. 
They need dialogue, which means you're going to have to give them the time to respond. Elihu will give Job time to respond. Check it out. He starts in verse 29 with another behold. It's a visual word. Behold, God does all these things. And now he begins to add them up twice, three times with a man. What's the purpose of it all? To bring his soul from the pit. He wants Job to think about the tension, the clash between the temporal and the eternal. That he may be lighted with the light of life. Again, in counseling, not only do you use repetition, you use restatement. You not only say the same thing repeatedly, you also find different ways to say the same thing. A combination, you see, of repetition and restatement, which is very effective in parenting. Until somewhere along the way you say something where you have an aha moment, and that other one says, oh, I, I see now what you're saying. But they use the word see. I see what you're saying. That kind of thing happens in the workplace time and time and time again, doesn't it? Well, you're up to verse 31. And now he gets personal again because, as we said, among these principles that we've got to understand to be effective in our counseling, as Dr. Ed Welsh in his podcast pointed out, you have to enter by the gate of trouble, and you've got to understand that counseling is personal. Notice how personal this gets. 31. Pay attention, old Job. Can't you just see Job's eyes get real big at this point? You see, because none of the other counselors have even mentioned his name. Listen to me. Be silent. I will speak. Is this going to be monologue time? No. If you have any words... Answer me. Let's enter into conversation. Do you have any questions? Now again, this is the younger teaching the older. We've got to value the significance of the fact that this is not based upon years of experience, but rather a statement of maturity. Speak, he says. For I desire to justify you. That would have been music to Job's ears. Because in chapter 32, when we were introduced to his new counselor, Elihu, we were told in verse 2 that Elihu burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. And now here is Elihu saying, If you have any words, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. Which is what none of the other counselors had been willing to do or say. I'm here for you, Job. I'll speak up for you, but you've got to say something to me. Highly conversational. Highly dialogical. But if Job doesn't have anything more to say, because he might be hurting, and I find, don't you, that sufferers so many times have run out of words. They're just so weary. They become passive. Well, then he says, if not, listen to me. Be silent, and I'll teach you wisdom. But this is a wisdom from above not a wisdom from below. And now we've got a Velodia moment where he shares the good news, the grace of God into a heart that's hurting. So here's Elihu now. The only counselor who does not get rebuked 
by God at the end. Because he's the only counselor who's messianic in his counsel. Gradually, his chair began to move into our little circle, says Dr. Ed Welsh in his podcast on evangelistic counseling. Here's this atheist. One time, he even prayed when we're in this circle. But a different kind of prayer. Okay. But you see, he's headed in the right direction. And what's counseling, by the way? It's facing Jesus. That's what we want to do. Move toward him. And I knew he was in trouble. Once he began to, well, you know, she would talk and he would interrupt me. And he would go through scripture with his wife. And I hate to say it was anticlimactic when he asked me to go out for lunch and announce that he too had become a Christian. What a loaded experience. We both cared for the same person who was suffering. He the husband, me the counselor. But he was stunned by this personal world, this personal counselor, and this personal God who got so close. God was so real that all this made sense to his soul. God has given us opportunities for evangelistic counsel, lessons that suffering offers, grace that God supplies, dialogue that sufferers need. Are you willing to talk? Let's talk about your suffering. But let's talk about the one who suffered for you and died in our place for our sins. Let's stand together. Uh, Father, we don't waste our experiences. We invest our experiences. Here's this very gifted young counselor who has listened very carefully to not the medical but the legal figures of speech that Job was uttering. So he talked Job's language. What we've got to do on a daily basis in our relational circles is to talk their language. Might be business language. Might be school language. Might be sports language. Got to talk their language, but we've got to listen. Figure out where they're coming from. What they value. And then enter into their, into their minds and into their hearts. Get personal with Jesus and show that person how personal Jesus is dying for our sins. So thank you now for this time together. Thank you for this series in Job. Thank you for this incredible book that gives us greater insight, greater insight into who you are, how you work, how to counsel and help us, Father, to be able to say, oh, I see. I see the light and bring light to the darkness of this world. And for this, we give you all the praise now. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.